uh, filled up with gratitude this morning from another week of studying God's Word and even being moved to worship in preparation for the sermon. One of the things that has been uniquely afresh to me this week is I am so thankful that God does not require perfect grasp and understanding before coming into the pulpit in order to preach. Uh, My heart has so exploded this week in many ways in worship, Uh, just thinking about the ways in which I, my thinking and my affections are being stirred by what I learn in the study. And so uh, our time throughout this whole book has served to grow both the breadth and the depth of my understanding of what's happening in this book. And I pray that that's what's happened in your life. Uh, But I also pray that it's not just our understanding that has grown, but really our love for the God that this book puts centered uh, centrally on display. And so I can't, uh, I can't wait to share even this morning uh, the stunning riches of this passage that have gripped my heart, uh, even in private worship. Pastor Jonathan Parnell helpfully says that our readiness to understand Exodus 34 depends on how we understand Exodus 33 verse 18. Where Moses said, I pray to you, show me your glory. You see, if what Moses doesn't ask there, if that doesn't compel us to to lean in and to listen up, then we won't understand the stunning realities of Exodus 34. And here's why. Because Exodus 34 is God's breathtaking answer to that prayer of Moses in 33.18. And so at the outset, I wonder just how desirous are you this morning for God to show you his glory? My hope is that as we consider this God of glory, that our hearts really would expand with longings and yearnings for more of him. And those expansive capacities for the mind to expand and the heart to expand, the intellect and the affections to expand, man's best sermons can't expand those capacities. But praise be to God, the Spirit takes faithful sermons, and that's what he does. He expands our ability to better understand, and he expands our ability to more deeply treasure him. And so if you would join me in prayer, and you would ask with me that God's Spirit would do that work this morning. Let's pray. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we beg you that for the next few moments... You would allow distractions to fall away. You would allow our attention to be riveted by the glory of who you are. And you would allow our hearts the capacity to love you and long for you and yearn for you, that you would deepen those capacities. And I pray that at the end of this sermon, it wouldn't just be more longings that we have of you. It would be more satisfaction we have in you. And so I am very aware of the limitations of the words on these pages, not your word in this sermon. And so would you please, by your spirit, help. I have beheld wondrous things in your word this week. I want to be faithful to hold up Christ trusting that as he is lifted up, you will draw men to him. And so, Spirit, would you allow the sermon that is heard to be far more effective than the one that is preached for your glory and for our good, and in the name of Jesus, we pray. 
Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. I want to set the context a little bit further because I think if we don't understand the context fully, we will miss the force behind Exodus 34. And so immediately after making covenant with God, God's people blatantly break the covenant. That's what Exodus chapter 32 is about. God's people grow impatient because Moses has not returned down from the mountain in meeting with God. And so what do they do? They create an idol and give that idol God's name and began to worship this God whom they have created in their own image. And when they do that, they don't just make a small mistake. They, they forfeit the greatest blessing that anyone on earth could ever have, the blessing of God's very presence with them. And now this huge question, uh, this huge question mark hangs over God's plan for his people. Is God going to give them what they deserve? Or will God be gracious and do something that this people do not deserve? And Moses the mediator between God and the people, prays and God yet again extends grace to them. And we saw last week, Exodus chapter 33, verse 14, God then says as the fruit and the result of Moses' prayer, verse 14, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And it's after that assurance, okay, God's going to send his presence with, with us. And it's after that assurance that then Moses asks the request, can I see your glory? It's a curious request. Moses had seen the glory of God in the burning bush. Moses had seen the glory of God in the signs and wonders in the wilderness and in Egypt, he had entered into the cloud on Mount Sinai, and here he wants to see the face of God. Moses wants a fuller view of the radiance and the splendor of the glory of this God who is so incredibly merciful. And in many ways, after experiencing his mercy, Moses longs for more of his glory. And ought that not be the confession of every Christian? After receiving mercy, I so long for your glory. John Piper comments and he says, What was clearly at the heart of Moses' request was a longing to know the glory of God's character from which flowed the mercy that they had just received. And after Moses asked, can I see your glory? Show me your glory. God responds in Exodus 33 verse 20 and says, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. So God yet again mercifully provides a way for Moses to get a glimpse of the backside of God as he passes by. He provides a refuge in the cleft of the rock. And that brings us to chapter 34 this morning. And we'll look at three sections as we consider really three applications that will serve as our sermon points, beginning with number one, worship the all-glorious God. Worship the all-glorious God. We see this in verses one through nine, the passage that David just read to us. And really central to this point in verses 1 through 9, central to this chapter, Exodus 34, central to the book of Exodus, central to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and central to the Old Testament, and really central to the Bible, is the revelation that God gives us of himself in verses 6 and 7. I mean, in many ways, verses 6 and 7 serves as one of the pinnacles. 
the fullest, one of the fullest revelations God gives of himself in the Old Testament. But before we get to verses 6 and 7, don't rush past the first few verses. Because they evidence and they preview what the Lord is about to proclaim about himself. Look at verse 1. Moses is invited to prepare new tablets for the Ten Commandments. And God is going to once again do the writing. And so Moses is to ascend the mountain alone, again reinforcing the clear picture that God deals kindly with his people through the ministry of a mediator. But really what's behind the rock and the chisel of verse 1 is the truth that there is a holy covenant-keeping God who still desires relationship with his people. The amount of mercy and grace loaded in verse 1 is enough to stagger us, to fall down in disbelief. Why in the world would God yet again be so gracious as to establish and enter a covenant with a people who had just broken his covenant. God is utterly committed to making clear that his law is to stand because his law reveals who he is and his law reveals his longing and his desire to be in covenant relationship with his people. So verse 5, as Moses ascends and God descends to restore the covenant, it's interesting. God begins with something said, not with something done. And really, verses 6 and 7 serve as, like I said, some of the most foundational in all the Bible. In a book that has at the center revealing and answering the question, who is God? This passage is one of the fullest revelations of God that were given in all of Scripture. And what's stated here is just stated numerous times. I could go through Numbers 14, Deuteronomy 5, Psalm 86, 103, 111, 145, Nehemiah 9, 2 Chronicles 30, Isaiah 63, Jeremiah 32, Hosea 2, Joel, 3, uh, Joel 2, Micah 7, and Nahum 1. Just a, just a small smattering of places in which Verses 6 and 7 are repeated throughout the scriptures. And so this morning, if you are here and you have any desire to know God, then the best place to start is at the revelation that God gives of who he is. And that's what we have in these verses. And so whatever you have going on in your life this morning, what I don't want to do is be insensitive to whatever you have going on in your life this morning, but I want you to know that whatever you have going on in your life, your greatest need is to have this view, to have a a clear view of who God is, which will then inform everything. It doesn't mean it's going to be easier, whatever you're walking through. It doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't really matter, whatever I'm walking through. No. In many ways, knowing who he is helps us make sense of the difficulty. And so God begins in verse 6. And he begins with the Lord, the Lord God. Yahweh, Yahweh. The powerful covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who shares his glory with no other. This is the God who, by, by even referring back to how he identified himself to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. This is the I am who I am that speaks. And it's as if There's a colon after the Lord, the Lord God. And God is going to define and expound on who he is. In in many ways, this is 
one of the most beautiful sermons ever preached. And in this description of who he is, he says nothing about his power. He says nothing about his perfections. No, he speaks only of how he relates with others. Moses said, show me your glory. His glory and his goodness are seen in how he relates to his people. In many ways, what the Lord says here is the fulfillment of what he says in verse 19. That I will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses thought that it was just in what he saw. What he didn't realize is that he was going to get more of the goodness in what he heard. And the question every one of us must grapple with this morning, and we must rightly answer, is who is this God? So listen to who he says he is. And he begins by proclaiming that he is compassionate and gracious. And this may not be what we expect to hear right out of the gate of God's people breaking covenant with him. Show us your glory. God begins to tell them who he is and he begins compassionate and gracious. Compassionate is this emotional word speaking of a tenderness, of concern that a parent would have for a child that wells up in love. This God is compassionate. He's moved. And as we've walked through the book of Exodus, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. This is the God who heard their cries while enslaved. And he graciously answers. He's moved with compassion to answer his people. He's not only compassionate, he's gracious. He doesn't treat his people on the basis of what they deserve. And the fact that we're even part two up the mountain, restoring the covenant that they had broken is just evidence of that. He is giving them what they do not deserve. And so let's be clear this morning. If you and I are going to think rightly about God, then we have to allow our understanding of who God is to come under, to be subservient to what the Bible, what God's words, his own words are about who he is, then God is not indifferent to his people. God is tender. God is kind. God is gentle. God is never petty. He's not harsh. And he's not cruel. I wonder this morning if this is how you see your God. But he's not just compassionate and gracious. God continues and he says that he's slow to anger. Literally, the word means long of nose, which doesn't speak to his face. It speaks to his temperance. God is not a God who's on edge. This God doesn't have a a hairpin trigger that's just waiting to be set off. No, this God is patient. This God, in his response to evil, he's careful, he's wise, he's considerate. So many Christians that I talk to, I think they have this view of God as a God who sits on clouds of displeasure just waiting for something to poke so that his wrath can just come out. And Exodus 34 verse 6 would would correct that wrong view of who he is. He's slow to anger. He's not just gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. He's also abounding in loving kindness and truth. Abounding. He's overflowing. There's no limit to his loving kindness and truth. You and I can't exhaust the loving kindness of this God. 
These two words are combined some 220 times in the scriptures to describe this God. And so the question to ask is if he's slow to anger, then why is he slow to anger? Well, he's slow to anger because he's abounding in steadfast love, covenant faithfulness. The word is hesed. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts this word. Kids, if you have the Jesus Storybook Bible, you should go home and look for the places in which this word is used. And the Jesus Storybook Bible describes this kind of loving kindness this way. It's the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love that God has for his people. His anger is not unpredictable. It's not arbitrary. And so too is his steadfast love. God means to love those whom he loves. And his love never stops. God has a committed, loyal, freely giving, uh, given, undeserved, a grab hold of you and never let go of you kind of love. And that love is always matched with truth. God is faithful, God is true, God is reliable, God always comes through. And in many ways, this steadfast love and truth and covenant loyalty and loving kindness, it's like a tsunami that overtakes generations that just sweep more and more people into, up into his love. And so this morning, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have turned from your sins and placed your faith and your hope in the finished work of Jesus as your only hope to ever stand before God and find approval, if that is your story, you can bank on this. God binds himself to his people because he is overflowing with steadfast love and truth. Verse 7, this God keeps loving kindness for thousands. He keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. God is a God who forgives. The word there literally means to lift up, to carry away, or to bear. Who forgives iniquity, he carries away iniquity, he bears iniquity. The picture is that this God lifts the debt off of his people's shoulders and he bears it for them. And so this morning, if you are a follower of Christ and you are living in shame over something that you've done and you just can't seem to shake the guilt that's accompanying it, good news for you this morning. This is a God who forgives. You can know forgiveness your whole identity can change when you encounter this God. That's why we, we really do believe the songs that we sing. And that's why this morning we sang, there is a grace that is greater than all of our sin. Our sin can't outrun the far-reaching grace of this God. And that's such good news to a people who are so skilled at sinning. Such good news. See the comprehensiveness of what God says about what he forgives in verse 7. All three words for sin are just used here. It's as if God just piles it all up to say it doesn't matter. The iniquity, the transgression, the sin. Nothing is beyond the reach of his grace and forgiveness. This is a God who forgives. Even as I'm walking through this, I'm just going, we could have done a sermon on each of these things. The wellspring and the wealth of riches 
that can be mined out in these verses. And I would encourage you, if you really are struggling with either sin or guilt, shame, surrounding sin, I would encourage you to just camp out in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Become an expert at the character of God. And I think that will give you an understanding both of the grievous nature of your sin, but also the kryptonite of your sin. It's not stronger than this God. And many of us would love it if, if this explanation of who God is would just end here. That he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but yet the latter half of verse 7 says, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. If the description of who God is did not include the back half of verse 7, this would not be a God worth worshiping. I wonder if you believe that this morning. If we were to take the back half of verse 7 out of the Bible, I propose that that would leave us with a God who is not worthy of our worship. You see, if this God who could be good in a lot of ways, but if he is a God who indulges sin... If he is a God who doesn't bring about justice, if he is a God who allows sin to mar his creation with no final word from him as God, that is not God. Kevin DeYoung notes that many of us have a one-dimensional cartoonish kind of God. That every time God shows up in the Bible, he only has one aspect about him. Kind of like a cartoon. If the evil guy showed up in the cartoon, you could tell by the eyebrows pointing down, or the dark hat that he wore, or the scary music, or the... But in the same way, if he showed up always with a smile, or with hearts over his head, and we just think, yeah, when we think of God, we think of that. He's got kind of one dimension to who he is. And I'm so thankful for this revelation that God gives us of who he is that just reminds us that our God is not a one-dimensional God. He's multi-dimensional. And let's just be honest, honest. Mercy doesn't make any sense apart from justice. We can't understand grace apart from justice. Commentator, Pastor Jim Hamilton says it well when he says, God has established his justice to display the wonders of his mercy. God has established his justice to display the wonders of his mercy. And let's be clear. There may be consequences for sin that persist for generations. But yet his forgiveness likewise extends to thousands. As I was doing, I just kind of parked here and wrestling again, thinking, wait a minute. So is, is God saying here that my children are going to be held responsible for my sin? And the best way to answer questions that we have about the Bible is to allow the Bible to interpret itself. And so I was helped as I thought about this question and thinking about, wait a minute, God said something through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, makes clear. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. Nor, the, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. And so we turn to a passage like Exodus 18 or Ezekiel 18, and it helps us understand okay, wait a minute. The son who does not follow in the sinful footsteps of his father will not receive the curse, but will know forgiveness. But the son who does continue 
and the sinful footsteps of his father will bear the iniquity, not of the sin of the father, but of the sin that they are continuing to walk in. And I think this is a warning to us all, literally just even thinking about the consequences of our sin. There are far-reaching and devastating effects of sin. And so, friends, who do you say that God is? Good news this morning. You're not left to your own to come up with that answer. God has graciously told us who he is. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The question that faces you and I this morning is do we believe him? Do we trust that this is who he is? And if we believe and if we trust, there is a proper response. And Moses models that in verses 8 and 9. Moses falls prostrate on the ground and worships. When you come face to face with the true knowledge of who God is, there is no other appropriate response than worship. Moses is laid low. And then what does Moses do? After seeing God, he prays yet again. On the basis of who God is, God forgive us. God accompany us. And God make us your own. And so what's your response to the revelation of this God? The proper response is worship and to plead for mercy. This leads us to point number two, and point number two is going to be really short. Live in light of the covenant. Live in light of the covenant. We see this in verses 10 through 28. And yet again, verse 10, saturated with mercy and grace. Listen, then God said, behold, I am going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which had, have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. After all their sin, God is going to restore the covenant. And then he says something that I have a hard time believing. I, I believe it, but I have a hard time believing it. Because of all of the signs and wonders that God has done throughout the book of Exodus, God then says, here, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth. Like, I have things yet to be revealed that no one has seen or has any idea about. I, I'm reading this, and I cannot fathom what could be greater. And then the next thing he says, instead of looking back to what he has done, he looks forward to what he's going to do as his people come into the promised land. God's miracles won't be seen only in his deliverance, getting them out of Egypt. God's miracles are going to be seen in ensuring that they get to their destination and then they stay there with their God. Again, if you're a Christian, is this not your story? There is one reason that you were delivered from darkness into light, from death to life, and that was the grace of God. And that grace did not stop once you joined his people. No, the reason that you still are a part of his people is owing to that grace. The same grace that pulls out of sin is the same grace that ensures that you get all the way home. And so the Lord says, there will be miracles that you have not seen 
Oh, I've done quite a few in pulling you out. Now watch as I continue to work miracles to ensure that you get to glory. Not just even to the promised land, but to the ultimate promised land. Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And the reason this is a short point is because really everything in this section consists of select portions that we've already discovered or that we've already discussed. If we were to go back, you have the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and then you have the giving of the, the book of the covenant. So, so you have the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, but what does it look like to apply those Ten Commandments to Every facet of life. Well, that's Exodus 21 through 23. And so, real life application to the Ten Commandments. We are expecting then, as God is going to restore His covenant, that He would then give a sampling of the requirements that would make clear the conditions for this covenant. And just to kind of help you get your mind around it, if you were to look at 10 through 28, that middle section of Exodus 34... Verses 11 through 16 deals with how to be distinct from the world. And so there are commands in there. God's people are going to be tempted to worship what the world worships. They're going to be tempted to absorb the world's custom. They're going to be tempted to accommodate to the world's sin. They're going to be tempted to conform to the world's ways. And so the Lord reminds them here, you are to be a distinct people. It's what Paul would remind Christians of in Romans chapter 12. Yes, you are to be effective in the world, but you are not to look like the world. You are called out from the world. Well, why is this such a big deal that God's people would be distinct? Because verse 14, God is a jealous God. And jealous here doesn't mean envious. It means he's zealous. He's eager. God longs for what is his. But then the rest of this section, really beginning in 17 down to 26, is what it means to be devoted to the Lord. And again, from the book of the covenant, there's several examples that are, that are pulled about what it looks like to be devoted to the Lord. Observe these feasts. Offer these sacrifices. Rest on this day. And so the, the examples that he pulls really cover a spectrum that's, that's all given to, to make the point drive home to us as we're reading this. All of life, when you're in covenant with God, all of life belongs to Him. There's not a segment of your life that is unaffected by being in this relationship with God. And so he gives these examples. He even talks about not boiling young goats in their mother's milk. Yes, all of life belongs to him. And really the issue at hand, I think in this latter part about being devoted to God is really an issue of, do you trust God? Like, do you trust God enough to put away all the other gods? Do you trust God enough to worship him as he commanded you to? Do you trust God enough to give him the first of your flocks and the first of your harvest? Do you trust God enough to rest from your work? And so this morning, I would ask you, are you living faithfully to your covenant-keeping God? One of the things that I remember and one of the things I love seeing when children kind of stand up and perform something, and there's a leader, they have hand motions. So I think about music on a mission, presentation. Kids are up here, and they're, they've worked hard to remember and sing songs, and yet there's something about doing the singing and the hand motions sometimes where you think, I don't know what I do. And what are they doing? The whole time they're looking at the leader. So they're singing, they know that, and then the hand motions. And they're, they look at, try not to look at the leader, but they're looking at the leader to... And in many ways, I think this is the point of this section. 
in all of life, have the covenant that God has made with you in mind. Look to him. Look to his covenant and allow that to inform how we live. Brings us to point number three. Behold the glory of God. Behold the glory of God. We see this in verses 29 through 35. Moses comes down. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai. The two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of speaking with him. So when Aaron and the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near. Just allow your mind to see the story of what's happening. Then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation. They returned to him and Moses spoke to them. And afterwards, all the sons of Israel came near and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Mo Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with the Lord, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses and the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. Since chapter 32, sin has made, in this, this book that is making clear who God is, God's center stage, since chapter 32, sin seems to kind of be vying for some, some air time in the book. But sin doesn't win the day. And it doesn't win the day because of the mercy and the grace of God that shines forth amidst the dark backdrop of sin. Moses had been up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He'd been sustained by God himself. The text tells us he doesn't eat or drink. I love verses 27 and 28. I realize this is not in our section, but just God speaks and Moses writes. So many people think, how in the world do we get our scriptures? How do we know? God speaks and his chosen servant writes. And the confidence that we can have, even as it's coming through the hand of Moses, it is God who is writing it. Verse 29, Moses comes down again from the mountain with the two tablets in his hand. His face is radiating, and Moses doesn't know that his face is radiating. He is not aware of the effect that it's having on those around him. And then he finds out, and so what does he do? Moses seeks to reassure the people that this radiating glory is not meant to harm them or to scare them. In many ways, it's meant to comfort them. To remind them that they do indeed have a mediator who has met with the Lord and who has gone before, the, uh, before them on their behalf to the Lord. And I think that's one of the main purposes for the shining face is just to confirm yet again, Moses is the divinely appointed mediator. And the way that we see that just isn't in the new tablets, but also in the dazzling brilliance that's radiating off of his face. Phil Riken in his commentary says, Exodus reveals the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. He revealed his glory in the burning bush, in the signs and wonders, in the fire and smoke, on the mountain, in the self-disclosure of 34, 6, and 7. And now here he reveals his glory in the face of God's chosen mediator. And so what does Moses do? He puts a veil over his face to protect the people from this radiating brilliance. And verses 34 and 35 remind us this isn't just like a one-time thing where it, once it was brilliant, but no, every time. Like every time he goes in to meet with the Lord, he comes out and his face is radiating and so he covers it. And really this theme has a lot of relevance to you and I this morning because this theme of a divinely appointed mediator standing between a holy God and sinful humanity really forms the storyline of the Bible. Like the scene here about Moses points us to this greater mediator who's going to come. His name is Jesus. You see, on this day in Exodus 34, they beheld the glory of God through 
the face of their mediator, Moses. On this side of a new covenant, a better covenant that God has made with his people, Christians behold the glory of God's uh, the the glory of God in the face of their mediator, Jesus Christ. And the difference between Moses and Christ cannot be more significant. Moses is merely reflecting the glory of God that he has been exposed to. Jesus is radiating from within the glory of the God that he is. And this is what Hebrews reminds us, Hebrews 1.3. And he, being Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the power of his word. The incarnation, the coming from heaven to earth of the Son of God, puts God's glory on display in a way that has never before been seen. But this glory wasn't always radiating. It wasn't always shining. It, this glory would not have been obvious to all of us in the life and the ministry of Jesus. You wouldn't have perceived that glory by merely looking at his face. I'm helped in his book, God is the Gospel. John Piper says this, when we see Jesus, we see the glory of God as in no other manifestation. It's in no other form do we see it like we see it here. Of course, there were many who saw Jesus and did not see the glory of God. The glory of God in the life and the ministry of Jesus wasn't the blinding glory that we will see when he returns, when his face will be like the sun shining in full strength. No, his glory in his first coming was the incomparably exquisite array of spiritual, intellectual, moral, verbal, practical perfections that show up in a kind of meek, miracle-working, unanswerable teaching, humble action that set Jesus apart from all men. The human heart was made to stand in awe of such glory. The glory of Christ is not synonymous with his raw power, but it is the divine beauty of all of his perfections. And in Jesus' ministry, there were moments where that glory was seen. I mean, I think clearly Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are given a glimpse of that glory. That glory which had been previously veiled becomes visible. And up on that mountain, think of Mount Sinai, Jesus, not Moses, reflects. Uh, Jesus radiates. Moses reflected a glory. I believe the Mount of Transfiguration is identifying Jesus as the new Moses, who uniquely reveals the glory of God. This was the true nature of Jesus that was revealed, and the effect was extended even to his clothes. But even more so in the life of Jesus, the clearest way that we see his glory made clear is on the cross and in the resurrection from the dead, confirming the achievement of his work that would secure salvation for all who would turn from their sin and all who would trust in him for forgiveness of sin. Moses, as the mediator, protected the ungrateful and the rebellious Israelites from the judgment that they deserved. That came through Moses' intercession. Christ, as the mediator, protects sinners like you and I who trust in him, who richly deserve his wrath. But because of his obedience and his death as a substitute on the cross for our sins and his bodily resurrection, Christ protects sinners like us. Moses, you remember Moses offers to give his life as an atonement for the people? And God doesn't accept that from Moses, but he does accept that from Christ. 
Friends, if Moses found favor in God's sight, how much more is this true of the Son of God, who is our mediator and who lives to make intercession ever for us? We behold the glory of God through the mediator that Moses pointed us to, the one who is greater than Moses. We behold the glory of God in the face of none other than Jesus Christ. And every attribute that we mentioned earlier of of God can only be experienced through faith in Jesus Christ. And the ability to live in light of the covenant can only be experienced by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom we receive once we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And you and I can only behold the glory of God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian in here this morning, I pray that the sermon has somehow made clear to you that there is none who's more glorious than this God. And that the only way that your life will ever find hope before him is through trusting in the work of his son, Jesus the Christ, the greater and better mediator. And you can know this God. You can be in right relationship with this God if you will turn from your sin and trust in the work of this mediator. Non-Christian friend, I would plead with you today, don't leave here not trusting in Jesus. And there's so much rich application in uh, for us as Christians thinking about this passage If I could just point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. If I could could just plead with you, would you read this today? Would you read this today to give you an understanding of how Paul applies everything that's happening in Exodus chapter 34? Paul preaches that there's this new covenant that's superior And there's a stunning reality now because of this new covenant based on the work of Christ. And this is what Paul's going to say. He's going to say Christians are able to see more glory than Moses saw at Mount Sinai. Do you hear that? You as a Christian are able to see more glory of this God than what Moses saw on that day at Mount Sinai, both hiding in the cleft of the rock and seeing his glory pass by, you can behold more in and through your union with Christ. Paul says, Christian, you are in a more privileged position than even Moses was. And you have access to more glory than even Moses did. If there was a time to shout in this sermon, it would have been there. Those two stone tablets that represent the old covenant, they cannot, they were incapable of transforming the hard hearts of obstinate people. But the new covenant, that's exactly what it does. It transforms the hearts, hard-hearted hearts because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the glory in Exodus 34 is a fading glory, but the glory of the new covenant is eternal. In the Spirit of God, he removes the veil of blindness and hard-heartedness so that undeserving sinners would behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, this is your conversion story. Your veil was removed so that you could have communion with God. Only owing to the grace of this God. And you and I are never the same after that. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. As we behold our God, we become like our God. We reflect him. What you behold is what you will become. If you spend most of your day looking within, you will miss the opportunity to behold a better glory. Psalm 34, verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. Radiant faces come from looking at him. 
And you say, well, okay, I want to do that, but how do I do that? Like, how do, how do I get that? How do I have my face to be radiant with his glory? I would just invite you to consider two ways. We behold him the same way that Moses beheld him, not in what he saw, but in hearing him speak. Think about this. If you were to interview Moses today, and you were to say, what did you see when you were in the cleft of the rock? He would tell you what he saw. And then if you were to ask him, but tell us about the glory. He wouldn't just say, well, here's what I saw. Moses would say, you want to know the glory? Let me tell you about what I heard. Let me tell you about what he said. Because with what he said, I was able to behold his glory. And you and I do the same thing. We behold his glory by hearing his word, by reading his word, by gathering to hear his word preached and proclaimed. It, it must be a surge of joy that, could, that should shoot through all of us to think that by the act of reading his word, we can behold his glory. Friends, that's why holiness matters. Because your greatest need on any given day is to behold more of his glory. And so how do we behold his glory? We come face to face with his glory by what he speaks, by what he has said. And so we read the word not to merely say, yes, I read the word. No, we read the word to see and savor the glory of God made clear through us in and through the face of Jesus Christ. We read to have our affections awakened, to have our affections cultivated, to be so satisfied by the sight and the beauty of the glory of God. We read God's word so that we would see God. I wonder if that's why you read your word. But not merely putting yourself in front of it daily to read it. It's why we gather weekly to hear it proclaimed. I don't have time, but in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, You heard my sermons, and in hearing my sermons, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Like there is a way to behold the glory of Christ by listening to the preaching of his word that then gives us sight to see the truths of his word. And so sermons aren't TED Talks. They're not pep talks. The effect of every sermon that you hear ought to be, I have a clearer sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And faithful sermons ought to be those sermons that take your gaze and get them off of yourself and the world and put them solely on the worth of Christ. So much more to be said. And so Covenant Life, I've prayed this week, God, would you allow us to be so enamored with your glory, that we would not be the same. Would you give us a hunger to behold your glory day after day after day that would then make it such a priority to gather with your people, to hear your word proclaimed that together we would behold your glory. And we do this, we do this because it's preparing us for an eternity where we no longer have to walk by faith. It will give way to sight. And I promise you, every sacrifice you've made to behold his glory on this side of eternity be well, will be well worth it once you see his glory on that one. And so coming to life, let's worship this all-glorious God. And we can because of Christ. Let's live in light of the covenant, and we can because of Christ. And let's behold the glory of this God, and we can because of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. God.
please change us. For all the application points that were missed this morning, I pray that your spirit would help. But I pray for every one of us that you would turn up the intensity and the desire for more of your glory. And so as we prepare to sing, we take a moment of silence to listen to you. So speak to us, we pray. <laughs>